Wasn't that a uh, special time of worship? Did you enjoy that? It was good heart. And there is a very real sense in which that's not the worship, but now this is the, the other bit. There is a very real sense in which worship now can continue as we open up God's word, because worship, as you know, really is a posture of the heart, isn't it? And of course, the songs and the lyrics and and the banjos who led us so beautifully have led us to a place where that posture before God was really sweet. But let's keep that posture, huh? Let's keep that posture now, which is sweet before him. And as we so often do, just ask the, the Spirit of God now to come and administer his, his word, the word of God, to, to each and every one of us. So with, with that thought in mind, um, I guess we're trying to corporately say this morning, Father, that we want our hearts to have that posture of surrender and openness to you which is as a sweet offering, a beautiful aroma, pure worship. And as we allow your word now to speak to us, you to speak to us, we pray it would be pleasing to you as you shape and mould and correct and and do all of the work that you do so well in our lives. Holy Spirit, come now and have your way over this time, we pray. And all the Lord's people said, Amen. Amen. I'm kind of blessed in our marriage when it comes to movie choices because... I haven't so much had to adapt to chick flicks as it seems that Bron loves a good action film. And yes, I'm a very blessed man. One of our probably favourites is, is a kind of an older one now. Um, well, we've got, got a number of favourites, but, but one that came to mind this morning, it was called Vantage Point. It's, a, it's yet another assassination attempt on the president of the US. Um, I don't know how many there are now, but this was yet another one. But the movie was shaped around the idea that the assassination takes place or the attempt takes place. But then from different vantage points, you're able to actually piece, slowly piece together the movie. And so there's, there's everything from the, the Secret Service agent who thought that he had failed uh, to a, um, a, a, another witness nearby to, to somebody else that seemed, you know, to have a rather, uh, I, I guess, un, understated, benign role in the whole plot and so forth. It ends up being the baddie, and, and so on and so forth. And so there are all these different vantage points, and the movie is basically about exploring the plot from different vantage points to slowly uncover the truth. And the passage that we have to today is a little bit like that. When you first read it, it, it just really seems that, wow, that's a little bit dour. From a particular vantage point, ha, huh, what, is, what is there in that for us today? And so we need to, as always, try to approach the passage 
from God's point of view to try and understand best, well, how is he seeing things unfolding here? What's God's vantage point? Let me read to you and join me if you have your Bibles with you. Mark chapter 14. I'm going to read from verse 53 through to 65. And essentially this is the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Mark chapter 14, verse 53. As we go through the passage, you are going to see a number of different vantage points, the way that different people are viewing what it is that is unfolding here. We're going to get to the end And you're going to be asked the question, what about you? What do you see here? What do you think? What's your vantage point? Verse 53, they took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. The first vantage point that we see in this passage is is that of Peter. It's kind of a distant one, but, but we notice that, that Peter being true to his word, I will never forsake you has tried to do what he can to stand by Jesus, even to the point of taking off of an ear of the servant of the high priest. Peter is trying desperately to stay true to his word. He follows Jesus all the way to the chief priest's house. He's not allowed into the courtyard. John tells us that 
One of the disciples, probably him, who had some relationship with the chief priest, goes out, gets Peter, and brings him in to the courtyard so that they can be there together. And there they, there they sit and warm themselves by the fire. The first vantage point is that of Peter. And Peter is following Jesus, but at a distance. And therefore, he's not entirely sure of all that is unfolding. Perhaps closer to all that is happening is the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were 70 plus one, 70 plus the chief, chief priests. They actually, actually had a court that they could meet in. This is not it. They only needed a quorum of 23. And so probably, being the Passover and all, they've put word out to try and get as, as many who could come, and they would have met that quorum. And so some 23-plus of the Sanhedrin are meeting together now at the chief priest's place. This is a kind of an ad hoc extra, extra meeting, a trial that shouldn't really have been taking place on the Passover, but nonetheless, they were seeking Jesus' death. And they've got it kind of a little bit backwards. He's guilty and he must die. Let's find some evidence to support this. The whole thing is really a mock trial. They've got it all backwards. But interestingly, that's not that different to today, 2,000 years later, is it? Isn't it true that the world still doesn't understand Jesus? Isn't it true that many, an atheist or an agnostic, or someone actually who has committed themselves to an entirely different world religion, doesn't really give Jesus a fair trial? Isn't it true that even today he is, he is dismissed in the same manner? John Smith, well-known evangelist who died recently, the founder of God Squad, I had the privilege when he did a crusade up in Ipswich on one time of, of having some time with him as I was driving him between locations. And, and I recall him saying, with regards to the way that we develop a belief system, he says, in his experience, most people don't logically think through the fundamentally most logical worldview and belief system and then adapt their lifestyle to fit it. No, 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 no. We like to think that, particularly in the enlightened West. But the truth is, we do it backwards. We find the lifestyle we've always wanted and then we support it with a belief system that will prop it up. And he said as an evangelist, his greatest challenge is to deconstruct those belief systems. We still do it today. We give Jesus, as it were, a very unfair trial. We've already made up our minds about who he is or isn't. We don't really listen to the evidence. We just find whatever little bits and pieces we can around the place to support and, and build up a framework that allows Jesus to stand condemned. And so that's the vantage point of the Sanhedrin. Not that different 
to many today. But then in verse 60, we read the high priest finally, because Jesus is is basically being silent before the false accusations that have been being brought to him. In one sense, his defense was absolutely perfect. Jewish law required that the two witnesses that actually actually give testimony, they must fundamentally agree on all the details. And so it seems that, seeing as Mark records the fact that that they couldn't agree, there must have been some sort of scrutiny, some cross-examination by some in the Sanhedrin who wanted to ensure at least some semblance of proper process. But as the cross-examination takes place, the witnesses are found to disagree. And they could, they could only, it might only be minor details on which they disagreed and their testimony would be dismissed. Now, according to Old Testament law, there were severe punishments for witnesses who brought false accusations. They would die. In Rome, the Jewish authorities, and this is going to be problematic for them in time, but they actually didn't have the authority for capital punishment. But even so, we don't see any indication in this mock trial of the false witnesses being disciplined in any way which they should have. All we know is that they couldn't agree on the details under cross-examination, and their testimony was thrown out. There's a sense in which Jesus didn't have to say a thing. So the chief priest, who was not allowed, incidentally, to be able to, to draw answers out of an accused person sitting in the middle of the court, he'd been 19 years in the job and and was pretty seasoned at what he did. So he takes it upon himself to actually personally question Jesus, and and he tries to draw out something, just something, on which they could lynch him. And so he throws out this statement, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? The Blessed One meaning God. Are you the Christ, the Messiah? Now Jesus generally speaking, did not apply that term to himself because there were many, many misunderstandings about who the Messiah was. He often referred to himself as the Son of Man, an allusion to a phrase in Daniel which clearly talked about the Messiah and him being the Messiah. So as the chief priest asks this question, Jesus answers. He says, I am. And you will see, he goes on, the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. From the vantage point of Jesus, now here is truth. This is what Jesus sees. And he feels at liberty to share it with all those in the Sanhedrin, all those who were gathered there. This is Jesus' testimony. But interestingly, he says, and you too will see it, and one day... It will be your testimony. In John 8, it's quite fascinating. I don't know how many of them would have remembered. But in verse 14, Jesus talks about his his testimony and why actually his testimony is more valid than the average person's. In John 8, 14, he says, well, firstly, my testimony is more more valid than the average person because, and I love this, (laughs) I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. 
And the inference is, and you don't. I know where I came from. Where did he come from? I came from heaven. I kind of know this stuff. And I know where I'm going. I'm going back to heaven, where I will rule over all things. Seriously. My testimony is valid. And then he says in verse 18, here's another reason why my testimony is valid. A testimony is valid when it is supported by another witness. So who's my other witness? Here's my other witness, my father. Now, they start a discussion, who is his father, and so forth. But, of course, Jesus was referring to his heavenly father. And so in two very, very beautiful little statements about the validity of his own witness or testimony, Jesus, on the one hand, says, I'll tell you why you should listen to me. One, I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going, and one day you'll see it too. Two, my witness, the one who supports my testimony, is God. There's my father, God. He supports what I say. And on that basis, I think we're good. I think you really should listen to what I have to say. Maybe that was lost by this time. He doesn't refer to it again. But he does give his testimony, and he does so with the authority of one who is able to and is ably supported or by another witness. Jesus essentially gives them a glimpse of what I now see and what you one day will see. We know because God reveals it to us later through John in Revelation. We know exactly how this is going to unfold. Jesus says, I am who you say I am. And you will see me, the Son of Man, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. We might want a little bit more detail. So Revelation chapter 19 verse 11 gives it to us. John says, okay, I got to see what it was that Jesus was seeing in this particular moment. Here's how it unfolded before my eyes. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Wow, that's what Jesus saw. And he didn't mind at this part of the trial in giving everybody else a glimpse of what he knew to be true. I don't know whether to call that moment when the judged are judged or when the judge judges. Either way, there will be a great reversal. Jesus will not sit as the accused before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin will sit accused before the throne of God. And Jesus will be the judge. R.T. Kendall, a pastor, theologian, commentator, on one occasion I was reading a quote of his and he's talking about perspectives, different vantage points, 
And he said this, from man's perspective, when you look at a world of suffering and so on, from man's perspective, God has a lot to answer for. From God's perspective, when he looks at a broken world of suffering and misery, man has a lot to answer for. We know, Scripture testifies to it again and again. Philippians 2.11, Paul picks up this theme. He simply says, yep, you will see that. Exactly what Jesus says, you will see that. Indeed, when you see it, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It will happen. It absolutely will happen. And blessed is the one who testifies this side of heaven. Jesus' vantage point was he saw the truth. He knew what it was that was to come. But unfortunately, those gathered around there could not see it. And so we read on in verse 63, the high priest tore his clothes, which was customary when, when God is blasphemed. He was giving an indication of what his judgment was. Normally, the Sanhedrin would cast their verdict from the youngest all the way working around to the oldest, finishing with the high priest himself. On this occasion, he gave his verdict and he says, why do we need any more witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. They began to spit on him and strike him and beat him and, and say prophesy while he was blindfolded. And all of, all of those things were consistent with the usual practices of somebody who was condemned for blasphemy. So Jesus is rejected, and here, here we come to the last vantage point as we read this passage, because we cannot read it, can we, and not be just a little bit disturbed. The truth is, when we get to that last bit, he's worthy of death, we want to rise up out of our chairs, don't we? We want to say, that's unfair, that is unfair, because that is my Jesus, that is my Saviour and Lord, that's not right. And... We can hardly read the next bits. They spat at him. They blindfolded him. They struck him. They beat him. They mocked him. It sticks in our throat, doesn't it? It does. We don't like reading it. We, we don't like that part of the passage unfolding. From, from our vantage point, that's just wrong. And for us here today, today's audience... Our vantage point says, I'm not comfortable with that still, 2,000 years on. I don't like that. It sticks a little bit in our throat, but it's true, and it helps to explain much of the Christian experience. Jesus said, follow me.
Anyone who would be my disciple must take up their cross and follow me. So we read this last part of the passage. And yes, it doesn't sit well with us, but we reflect on it again and it's truth to us. Our vantage point is one in which Jesus once more was modeling the reality of the Christian life for us. No servant is greater than his master. Whoever wants to be great among you must be the least. Years ago, um, I worked with an organization called Caleb Ministries. We did a whole lot of leadership training. Um, we would do courses in Australia, New Zealand, other parts of the world. Often the ones in New Zealand would have some 20 or so pastors gathering around and and as one of the senior trainers um, of the particular course that we ran, I, I, I was fascinated at a fairly young age that here I was consulting with pastors of some fairly large churches, helping them nut out, you know, how to resolve particular issues and so forth in their church. But there was a nagging feeling that this was not my future. I remember on one occasion, one of the, the chair of the board walking, walking me round an establishment on a particular course that we're on, saying, Stuart, we really want you to take on the, the directorship of the organisation. We want you to, to lead this. And, and I was trying to find nice ways of saying no. I guess there was something, a nudge within me that said there's something missing here. I guess I don't mind passing on teaching and so forth regarding, you know, management principles and so forth. But frankly, to think that the kingdom of God might suddenly be ushered in because of the evolution of the social sciences and managerial techniques, I just don't think that's going to happen. I don't think we've got smarter and better and so suddenly the kingdom of God will be ushered in. And I was probably, probably torn at this particular point, wondering between one of two things. Is my hesitation that I'm teaching beyond my experience? I need, I need to go put this into practice somewhere? Or is there something more fundamental that I'm looking for that intersection between spirituality and leadership? I'm looking for that sweet spot where the two come together to accomplish God's purposes. Probably at both end. Shortly afterwards, we would leave the organization. And we were offered another job on, on board OM ship, the Doulos. And the idea was that we would come, they were ready for significant change, apparently, and, and somebody who had some consulting skills, such as myself, come on board, take up a position, immerse yourself in the ship ministry and, and help, us, help us, you know, change. And so we did that. And many of you know, we left with our family and we joined the Dulos and we sailed the seven seas, or at least a couple of the seven anyway. And I quickly realized that that whole lure of consulting to bring about change was not going to happen. Those who talked to me about that weren't really in the positions of leadership to bring that about. I was, I was one more 
hope that something good might take place, that some change might take place, but it wasn't going to take place there and it wasn't going to take place then. So that left us on the ship wondering, what are we here for? And in the jungles of the Philippines, we were, we were leading what we called a pre-ship, getting lots of you know, young recruits ready to join the ship. And we had a brand new director. His name was Francois Vosloo, a, a wonderful, wonderful godly man and a, a leader uh, for whom I still have tremendous respect today. And Francois sat down with me on one occasion and, and he asked me a little bit about my position and so forth. And, and he was somebody that you could open up with very, very much. Or if you didn't, it wouldn't matter anyway. He was so discerning, he would just pick you apart. So I decided to open up. And as we chatted, I said, Francois, to be quite honest, I'm feeling a bit lost. I felt I came to the ship for one thing, but it didn't evolve, and I'm feeling a little bit lost. And so he said, I understand that. And I said, you know, I don't know why this just popped into my mind, but it did, and I thought I'd share it with him. I'm quite fascinated by Paul's statement in Philippians 3.10. I want to know Christ and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And Francois said, oh, Stuart, he said, you know, for the past 12 months, I've been meditating on that verse alone, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And then he sat there for, a, for quite a while. There's quite a silence just permeated our meeting. And he finally asked me a question, Stuart, do you really want to understand that verse? And I said, yeah, Francois, I think I do. And he said, then we must find, mustn't we, Jesus' way. We must find out how would Jesus lead. And I looked at him and I said, yes, we must. And he said, well, if I asked you to relinquish your position and go on to gangway watch for the rest of your tenure, would you do it? And I looked at him and I thought, I know you some, but I don't know you that much. I'm going to assume at this point that you're serious. This is not a hypothetical. And I said, Francois, I'm going to need some time on that one. So I spent the, the night, and Bron would know this, um, spent the night wrestling with the idea that the rest of our time on board the Dulos, I would be the gangway watchman, which was an important job. It would make sure that nobody fell off the gangway. But day in and day out, it wasn't necessarily why I had joined the ship. By morning, though, I had been able to come to a place of surrender, and I I checked in with Francois and I said, Francois, regarding your question about gangway watch, yep, I'm there. I'm your watchman. And he said, thank you. And that was it. You know, I sort of left that conversation, well, when do I start or when do I, you know, like, how does that look and so forth. I was never entrusted with gangway watch as it happened. <laughs> But it was an important time of surrender, of discovering the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, of discovering Jesus' way to lead servant leadership. 
quite simply in the Christian life regarding any area whatsoever. Just think of an area of Christian life or ministry that that you might have in your hands. Quite simply, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings is this. As Jesus says, I must die so that you can live. We must echo, now I must die so that you can live. Jesus had to die so that we could live. And the Christian life is one in which we must die so that he can live. Along with John the Baptist, quite simply, we would say, I must become less so that he can become more. From our vantage point, we don't like this part of the passage, an unfair trial, an unfair conviction, and then mockery and beating. It just doesn't feel like the right way. But Jesus says, come, follow me. Interestingly, As the chief priest says, what do you think? They thought he is worthy of death. But Jesus knew that God's vantage point was different again. And that there was a song in heaven told to us in Revelation chapter 5. And the song that they sang says, you... Speaking of Jesus, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. What a song. Our condemnation became God's commendation. They condemned Jesus to death, saying, you are worthy of death. God commended Jesus and says, you are worthy to open up the scroll. Jesus could hear the verdict given by man, but he knew the verdict given by his father. He was worthy. Oh, yes, worthy to die but worthy to be raised up once more. When we share in his suffering, whether we're abandoned, judged, criticized, mocked, or despised, when we share in the suffering of Jesus, we have shared in the deepest kind of fellowship possible with him. His experience of suffering has become ours. But here's the promise. His experience of glory will also become ours. Jesus said, I have given them the glory that you gave me. How does he do that? As we suffer with him, he rewards us with his glory. As we share in his sufferings, he promises we shall share in his glory. Romans 
Chapter 8, verse 17 says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs. That means we inherit what is Jesus's. Now, yes, that means inheriting suffering, but it also means inheriting glory. We are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. There are many who follow Jesus to share in his glory. And as I've said before, that's not that bad a thing. He does want you to share in his glory. But we must understand that to share in his glory, we must first share in his sufferings. Let's just bow our heads for a moment. And I want us just to to take a moment before God. To share in his vantage point. You might be going through a, a difficult time at the moment. A time of uncertainty. You might be facing something which, in, from your perspective, it's unfair. You might feel abandoned. You might feel judged. You might feel criticized. You might, might feel mocked. You might feel despised. From your point of view, it's not right. And God understands that perspective. He does. He truly does. But he wants you to do what Jesus did and to raise your eyes to see another perspective. To see things as he sees them. And to realize that what you're going through at the minute, there's a sweetness to that kind of fellowship. You have had the privilege of knowing Christ in sharing in his sufferings at a deep level. But for those who share in his sufferings, the promise is you'll also share in his glory. I want to say to you this morning, please hear these words. Here's the secret to the Christian life. And the way forward from wherever you are at the moment. Quite simply, what you lay down, he will raise up. Jesus knew it. He was obedient to his father and he knew that what he would lay down He could trust his father to raise it up. What you lay down, he will raise up. We've had some delightful days. They all indicate a new season, don't they? Spring has come. 
a new season in your life, a new season in our church, what will be the mark of that season? How will we look different from the previous one? What will be the mark of you going forward? What will be the mark of our church going forward? What will mark this new season for you? I pray that it will be for you, for me, for our church, an immovable trust in our God that whatever we lay down, He will raise up. He can be trusted. You may have to put something aside for the time being. You may have to let go, but you can trust Him. He loves you. He's good. He will raise it up. Jesus knew that. And I wonder if in that courtroom amongst that Sanhedrin, I wonder if Jesus could already hear heaven's song. As they said, you're worthy of death, I wonder if he could already hear the angels singing, indeed you are worthy to take up the scroll Jesus trusted the Father to raise up what he laid down. And his Father in the heavenly realm was raising up a hallelujah. He was raising up a new song. And Jesus could hear that song. This morning, can you hear that song? Whatever you're facing. Can you hear the song? The Father is raising up. Band, come and, come and join us and lead us. And as we sing, I want you to allow God to lead you in the song of heaven. Yes, you share in his sufferings, but you get to share in his glory as well. And he's raising up a new song, a, a hallelujah. It's a hallelujah chorus. And he invites you this morning to come and join him, to sing along as well, to sing that song, to hear what heaven is singing, and have heaven sing it over you this morning. So why don't you stand with us, please? Let's raise a hallelujah. Hallelujah.